welcome to Pillar of Truth. Today in our series called The Real Story of Marriage, Travis will be introducing us to some of the practical foundational principles for marriage according to God. One of those practical principles has to do with challenging us about where we go for help when we see that our marriage is struggling. The practice of most people in our day and age, whenever they're struggling with marriage or any other problem, is to go straight to Google to find their help. While we would not deny that helpful, even sound biblical advice can be found on the internet, it's a bad sign that this tends to be the first thing that so many of us do. Going directly to an internet browser and typing in our problem there allows us to shop for counsel. We're able to look through article after article in order to find the advice or counsel that we think will be the most helpful for our specific problem. And if you think about it, this is the way that allows you to be the one that gives the ultimate answer for how best to deal with your issue. You're the one that takes into account all of the information and then ultimately makes the final decision about whose advice you are going to listen to. It might feel like you're humbly admitting that you don't know what to do, so you're reaching out to help from outside of yourself. But in the end, you're still relying on your own abilities and assuming that even though you didn't know how to handle the situation, you can still be trusted to evaluate possible solutions and make the right determination. But as Christians, we know that the foundational issue to every problem in this world, the reason that things don't happen the way that they should, is because of sin. And the answer to sin in our life always involves repentance. The admission that we are doing something that goes against God's word and we need to stop Admit we are sinning, seek forgiveness, and move in the other direction. God has kindly given us his word, which is sufficient to give us all the answers that we need in order to live faithfully in every situation in life. And he has given us the church, the body of Christ, that we are inseparably connected to. Those who know us best so that we can receive the true counsel that we need to hear, whether it's what we want to hear or not. God provides all that we need for our lives and our marriages— all that will bring glory to Him. The question is, are we willing to submit to Him and seek it out? This is what you're going to hear more about today. We want to talk about practicing Christian marriage. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a foundational text on the doctrine of repentance. And repentance is the real secret in the practice of marriage. You're going to have plenty of opportunity for repentance in marriage. But repentance, if you set your mind on repentance and realize that all of life really in the Christian life, all of life is repentance. Repentance is going to bring you in marriage, the greatest joy, the deepest gratitude as all of us grow in grace, in the grace of Christian marriage. One of our favorite figures in church history is Martin Luther. And for many, many reasons, he's one of our favorites, but the Lord used him obviously to recover and clarify the doctrine of repentance for the church. One of the key doctrines, which was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. It was about eight years after he nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in 1525, when Martin Luther was 42 years old, that he married Katarina von Bora. Martin Luther had been a monk Obviously, he practiced as a Catholic monk, practiced clerical celibacy, so he'd never been married, but neither had Katerina. After she was converted, she escaped her convent and found refuge in Wittenberg, which is where she met Martin. She was 16 years his junior, and as she met him and got married to him, well, she had her hands full with a good doctor. Martin wrote, there is a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. 
One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow, which were not there before. And that was saying something for those pigtails to be on that pillow, because Martin had to admit, before I was married, the bed was not made for a whole year and became foul with sweat. I worked so hard and was so weary, I tumbled in without noticing it. Katarina had her hands full, and she was not about to put those pretty pigtails on that pillow until some things were cleaned around there. But Martin and Katarina enjoyed more than 20 years of a very happy, lively marriage together. They had six children, two of whom died very young. They had an active, very active home of ministry service. She was incredible wife and worker and even helped in some of the industry and providing some money and income for a minister's household, made meals around the table. And a lot of Martin Luther's conversations that happened around the table found their way into books and things that he would write. He called her Kette. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right in German, Kette, but it's a pun on a shortened version of her name, Katya or Kati. Kette means chain, referring to her as a ball and chain. He had a lot of pet names for her. That was one of the favorite, but it was no put down, really. Katie really was an anchor for Martin. She not only kept him grounded and anchored down in all the best ways, but she also kept him healthy, even provided a home and an environment that he would thrive in and that he might be even more used of the Lord. Those new churches, those young marriages in the burgeoning Protestant movement, I mean, breaking free from a thousand years of Roman Catholic domination over the mind. They didn't know how to do life and marriage well. They had no history. They had no understanding of what real good marriages looked like. And so this was used of the Lord mightily in helping to establish these young Protestant churches and the young Protestant movement. We have some of the most beloved quotes on marriage that come from Martin Luther. And we have Katie to thank for that because there would be none of those quotes if she had not come into the picture. Martin Luther says this, he says, the first love, he's talking about romantic love, those two come together. The first love is drunken so that we are blinded and drawn into marriage. And after we have slept off our intoxication, he says, then comes the real marriage love. Isn't that true? He says, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Isn't that a sweet one? The Christian is supposed to love his neighbor. And since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. Then he says this, there is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. Isn't that true? I know for those senior saints among us, those who've been widowed and enjoyed long, happy marriages, that's exactly what you'll find when you talk to them. They're the ones we want to look to, look up to, seek advice from. You young married people, if you don't have an older couple in your life that you go to for counsel, seek for advice, ask questions of them, just sit and listen, buy them a dinner, buy them a cup of coffee, whatever it is, get to know some of those folks. Well, Martin Luther had an opportunity to practice repentance in the context of marriage, going back to his 95 theses that I mentioned. In the first four of those 95 theses, Luther started out with the doctrine of repentance. This is where he started when he nailed those theses to the Wittenberg door. This very first of the 95 says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, the Lord willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. In that 
thesis, he was citing Matthew 3, 2 and Matthew 4, 17, where the Lord said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his intent in that thesis was to clarify what the Lord meant by repent. Because in the translation of the Latin Vulgate, that was commonly used by all the priests by the Catholic Church, they didn't get that word right. Repent was translated do penance. So he needed to clarify that. In the second and third theses, Luther made it plain and clear that by repentance, the Lord was not referring to an external act of piety, some work of penance that would earn the absolution of sins, like almsgiving and prayers and charity and buying indulgences and all the rest. Repentance, he said, is not externalism, not human works of piety to merit the forgiveness of sins. But also, he said, neither is the Lord advocating in calling for our repentance. He's not advocating for a merely inward piety, consisting in mental ruminations and a ponderous musing about the divine. Repentance has nothing to do with living a monkish life of navel-gazing or empty, fruitless spiritual contemplation. Repentance is neither of those things. External formalism or internal rumination. Repentance is something that bears real fruit, visible, actual fruit that can be seen, known, watched, observed. In fact, in the third thesis, Luther said, nay, there is no inward repentance, which does not outwardly work diverse mortifications of the flesh. And he goes on in the fourth thesis to say, repentance consists in hatred of self. It's going back to Luke 9.23, right? Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself. That's what he's referring to. Repentance consists in hatred of self. That is the hatred of the fallen nature. He says, it results then in the mortification of sin and produces the fruit of new spiritual life. That repentance continues, he says, until our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Again, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he will that the whole life of believers is to be a life of repentance. So the whole life, which for married couples is the married life, whole life is a life of repentance. We could say that another way for married couples, repentance is worked out in the context of our marriage. If you're married, I hope you see that as a wonderful, blessed gift of God, that you get to work out your life of Christian repentance in the context of holy matrimony, that you can work out your repentance within the covenant bonds of marriage with another creature that you become intimate with. Because it is a gift. It's a gift from God to be able to do that together. I also hope you see that this message, a message that marriage is the context of your Christian repentance, that you see that as completely countercultural because it is completely countercultural. God has given the institution of marriage, as we've been saying, He's given that institution for our formation to mature us. It's to shape and mold us. And sometimes being shaped and molded doesn't feel good. It makes demands of us. It says, you can't say that anymore. It says, you can't live that way anymore, but you can live this way. And as we're pushed forward along the path of sanctification and repentance, though it doesn't feel good at the outset, what we're pushed into is green pastures and still waters given to us by the Lord. 
but we have to be thrust out of what we find to be comfortable. What we find to make better sense to us sometimes. You don't have to be married long to realize how true it is that marriage is that gift, an institution that's there to shape and form and mold you and sanctify you. You realize how difficult that can be when you're stubborn, when your heart is hard, when you're ignorant of certain things, when you have trouble understanding. It is a difficulty, but it is a blessed difficulty given to us by the Lord for our holiness in order that we might find happiness. The world has been saying quite the opposite. It's been saying, shape and form the institution of marriage to fit yourself. Conform marriage to your desires. Make it what you want it to be. Let it conform to your wants, your pleasures, your expectations. I wonder how much of the world and its message sometimes, how much of the world's culture has gotten into us. Paul admonished the Romans, do not be conformed to this world. And again, I wonder how much is the world conforming us to its image and affecting our thinking from Disney's princess movies to romantic comedies, from teen romances to reality shows, to all the lifestyles of the rich and famous, from all the blended families we see to alternative lifestyles and different ways of doing family. Subtly, powerfully, the culture intends to form and shape us to feel weird because we're doing what the Bible tells us to do, because we're doing what actually makes sense, what actually has rational, reasonable, solid truth, justification. The world wants to make us feel odd, outsiders, when really they are the ones who have subverted all of God's truth about everything, including marriage. So as Paul wrote, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your minds that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, no longer conform to the world, transformed by the renewing of the mind in order to test, prove, discern God's will in order that we should do it, in order that we should practice it. What is that but another way to describe the doctrine of repentance? So we're going to jump into Ephesians 4 here. We're going to unpack repentance and apply repentance specifically to the institution of marriage. We'll just do an overview of Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Here's the first point, which we see in verses 17 to 19, Ephesians chapter four. Here's the first point. Stop doing marriage like Gentiles. Then you say, but I am a Gentile. And that's right. So repent and stop living like one. That's the point. That's what Paul says here in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you... Remember, he's writing to Ephesians, most of them not Jews, they are Gentiles. He says, I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? How do they live? How do they practice, go about the course of their life? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's not a pleasant way of looking at the world, but that is the truth. That is how God sees the unbelieving world. Futile thinking, fruitless reasoning, wandering around in darkened understanding, bumping into objects in the dark, tripping over them, falling over them, hurting themselves, hurting other people. Darkness comes because of spiritual separation from God, alienation radically from God because they are unregenerate. They are dead in trespasses and sins. And they therefore have ignorance about the truth. 
It's a willful ignorance. It's a willful blindness. And the result is callousness, a hardness. They are sensual. That is, they live by their five senses. They live to please the self, the senses. And they're driven then into impurity. They're driven by an insatiable greed. That is what Paul calls the Gentile life. And as Christians, we obviously don't want to live that way. But listen, how often do we seek that counsel? How often do we let what they say affect the way we live our lives? How often do we go searching for their advice? We have to stop listening to Gentile counsel. Stop listening to worldly advice. Psalm 1 opens the whole Psalter with this admonition. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The counsel of the wicked, the ways of sinners, the seat of the scoffers. That is exactly what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 4, 7 and 19. With these words like futility, darkness, alienation, ignorance. That's the world. They have nothing for you, believer. Nothing for you, Christian, with regard to life and godliness. Any advice that they give you with regard to life and godliness, family raising, raising your children, whatever, is going to lead to sensuality. It's going to appeal to sensuality. It's going to be driven by greed. It's going to lead to the practice of impurity. So stay away from it. First bit of practical advice you can jot down if you want to put a sub point or something here. First bit of practical advice here for husbands and wives. Let me be very clear. I'll say it in today's vernacular. Stop Googling the advice of the world. Stop Googling it. Don't go to the internet for counsel. And I'll be even more pointed here. Be very careful about the influence of professing Christians and authors and bloggers and podcasters and all the rest. I say this not because I'm just making it up. I mean, I really have seen over my years in ministry, decades of being a Christian, I have seen this error so many times enter into, especially with young people in the church. People in their 20s, 30s, 40s. They are enamored with people who have the next best thing. And they're too young to realize it's a fad that's been tried many times before. Whole generation of Christian young people kissed dating goodbye on the counsel of a 20-something author who became an evangelical celebrity. Josh Harris was elevated way too quickly. And hard to understand this, but he was platformed by much older pastors, men with sound reputations for faithfulness who ought to have known better And he was elevated to the spiritual detriment of many in that generation. This young man, he was raised as a Christian celebrity. He was really the poster boy for an evangelical kind of hipster purity culture, kind of a kind, gentle Christianity. But he has since abandoned the faith. He's apostatized in a very public way. And today he's making his living by trying to deconstruct evangelical faith. There are always going to be teachers who are ready to capitalize and make merchandise out of people because of the cultural drift going on in society. There are many even now offering a false version of manliness. They try to provide angry young men with biblical justification to be cigar smoking, whiskey drinking, gun toting, culture warriors that get into fights all over the internet. Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverence and profane speech. Nothing to do with silly myths. But Paul says to Timothy, rather discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
Godliness is the word Eusebia, Eusebia, and it means piety. I don't know if you've been listening to some of the bloggers recently, but they decry piety, piety, piousness, as if it's a bad thing. Listen, the Puritans love the word piety. They love the word pious because it means godly, godliness. I'm not talking about a false piety. We're not talking about an evangelical, pharisaical, self-righteous piety. We're talking about true piety, godliness. That's the goal. I just implore you, don't waste the early decades of your marriage, of your child-rearing years by following the advice of your peers, by following their blogs and podcasts and videos. So much of it is fad-driven or often worse, it's well-meaning, but it's undigested, untested stuff. They don't have the time and experience to test what they're saying to you. It comes from people who they themselves are still in the early years of life, marriage, and family. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, he says, test everything. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. How do you do that as a young married person? Back to Christ's gift to the local church, Ephesians 4.11. Go back to Christ's gift of godly leadership. Don't lean on your own understanding, Proverbs 3.5. Don't be wise in your own eyes, Proverbs 3.7. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil, be humble, seek counsel. It's those who fear the Lord who recognize their own spiritual maturity. It's those who fear the Lord who question their young 20, 30, 40-something judgment. And they seek the counsel of the spiritually mature, of those who know them in their local context, in their local church. They defer to that older wiser judgment, and they learn to follow wisdom. Knowledge alone puffs up. Love takes knowledge, applies it for life and godliness. Love learns wisdom. Love does that all for the sake of edifying others. Here's a second bit of practical advice for husbands and wives. In light of what we've been saved out of, which Paul has described in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, be kind understanding, patient, gentle with one another's weaknesses and sins in marriage. If I just put that point simply, go easy on each other. Go easy on each other. Be gentle with one another's sins and weaknesses. Be gracious with each other. The fall, as we can see in Ephesians 4, 17, 19, the fall has messed us up, hasn't it? All of us. None of us are immune from the effect of the fall. It's adversely affect our thinking our feelings, our affections, our, our volition, our willing. Sin has shaped and distorted our personalities. And more than that, sin is so interwoven into our masculinity and our femininity that sin takes the gender differences that God designed for our good and sin exacerbates, frustrates us to no end, doesn't it? And so women, be patient with your husbands. Be patient with them. Look to God, do what's good. Don't be fearful or intimidated. Your husband will change. It's guaranteed if he's a Christian. And let him see your godly example while you pray for his growth to maturity. He didn't enter into your marriage, a full grown husband, just perfect leader. He has to learn it. He's got all the tools by God's design. He's got it in his DNA, but he's got to practice it. It's got to come out over time. There's going to be some clunkiness along the way. Be patient with your husband. He's going to learn over time to appreciate the gift that God has given him in you. 
So he learns how to benefit from you, how to live with you according to wisdom and understanding. How he learns to appreciate your counsel. Men, same thing. Be patient with your wives. Allow time for their mental processing, for their communication style, which is going to be different than yours. As they express their concerns about their world, about all the practical details of life and marriage and family, be patient with them. Be gentle. Be kind. Give them time to express their thoughts to you so that you can help enter in and speak to it and shape it. And just sometimes just listen and say nothing. See your wife as God's gift to help you provide a feminine perspective. Martin Luther needed it, but we do too. We do too. She'll give you good godly counsel. So be patient listeners, curious students of your wife. Whatever you don't understand initially, Learn to ask good questions of her in order to discover the good counsel she's trying to give you. And be sure to thank God for her. Well, this is a good challenge to us all. Whether it be questions about marriage or anything else in life, let's stop seeking our counsel the way the world does. God has provided us resources for good counsel from His Word and through His plan for how the church should operate. And speaking of counsel, if you find that you're struggling and in need of godly direction, please send us an email at letters at pillaroftruthradio.com, or you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Pillar of Truth Radio. And if you don't have a good church with godly pastors and members who will help you and counsel you by trusting in the sufficiency of Scripture, then we would love to invite you to Grace Church of Greeley. Just go to gracegreeley.org for information. Thanks so much for joining us. Just 30 minutes each day, and soon you'll be standing up and standing strong on Pillar of Truth. <laughs>